Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. All right, good morning, legend. It's a new dawn for our church. We've trimmed the fat. (laughs) Casey, do you have that slide? Oh, it's online. Okay, well, if you're online, executive pastor is the new title that I'm bearing. Right? But as any good executive, I've decided not to do the work today. Uh, We do have somebody visiting with us, Dr. Mark Zeese, who uh, you guys will probably know as the person that taught Justin how to draw a map of the uh, Bible lands. Yeah, so every time he does that C thing, that's, you've got Dr. Zeese to thank. Um, We uh, are really excited to have Dr. Zeese with us, though. Uh, He was one of my favorite professors in school, and actually I wrote a little uh, memory down the other day uh, because I thought that this would be fun to jog his memory. Uh, One summer, uh, I went on an archaeological dig, actually, with Dr. Zeese and and another group of people over into the country, Jordan. And while we were there... Uh, you know, we learned all kinds of stuff, and it was really cool. I learned that I do not want to be an archaeologist. It is very tedious. Um, but along the way, we had all these stops, and, and we were able to hear from Mark, like, all the things that, uh, you know, these different sites were, like, relating to, like, what we had done in our uh, Bible Lands and Lifeways class, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but also, we had fun little trips uh, that we did around the country. And in one particular trip, uh, I was allowed to drive the rental vehicle. And it's hard to describe if you haven't been there, but the highway lanes are more of a suggestion than they are uh, like, you know, an actual thing. And so at one point, uh, we were driving down the highway, and um, I just... I. I felt like I had enough room, and so I was cutting between these two semis who were starting to close in. Um, But we made it, okay. Um, But then when we got to our destination, I was asked to relinquish the keys. Uh, (laughs) And so I don't think I was allowed to drive after that point, but we still had a lot of fun. Uh, Dr. Zeese, you know, again is the person that when I think about my time at CCU, which probably a third of you uh, can relate to since we have so many uh, graduates from that school or people that attended, but he always demonstrated patience and kindness with us. He always gave us uh, information that was not only relevant to what we are learning right now with our series on Joshua, but also talking to us about what that meant in their cultural context and how we can get something out of that in our today's context. So, Dr. Zeese, thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, 
Good to be here today, and uh, I appreciate you uh, welcoming me into your midst. And Joel, thank you for the memories, so many memories. It's, uh, it's good to be in your company, particularly apart from the presence, I guess the live presence, I understand, right? Apart from the live presence of both Jason and Justin. And since we are here, um, and they are not, it seems like the perfect opportunity to do a coup <laughs> or some kind of, a, you know, revolt or a heresy, general insurrection of some sort. I was hoping maybe there would be plenty of things here that would burn. Yeah, I think so. Anyway. No, I don't really mean that. I don't really mean that because if we pulled it off, I mean, really, pulled off a coup of some sort, Jason and Justin would probably be sore that they missed it. And uh, by this same token, we would probably end up on Kim's bad list, which is probably a place that none of us ever want to be. Anyway, anyway. At some point in the past, as has been obvious here a moment ago, um, I had Jason and Justin as students, and I had Joel as a student, and you just said there were like one-third, maybe, of the people here who had some experience? Maybe there, too. Okay. Who, who, do we have any other old CCUers in, in our midst here? Yeah? I can't see a thing with the glasses on. Okay. I see a few hands, anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyway, we had some good times, and it's, it's good to be here today. I was asked by um, Justin if I could come this morning and talk about the book of Joshua. And when he said Joshua to me, everything inside me, I went, yes. And then I said, and what chapter are we going to be working in today? And he said, chapter 18. And I said, Chapter 18 of the book of Joshua has no riveting dialogue. There's no Jericho walls, there's no harlot stories, there's no motivational speeches, no sarcastic language, none of that fun stuff. In fact, some might even question its relevance for us today. And yet here it is, a segment of scripture, holy writ, God's story, and we're asking ourselves, you know, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to make of it? This is the rub. This is the challenge. So for starters this morning, I thought the, the first thing, you know, the first thing we ought to do is, is put it into a context within the larger story of the people of Yahweh, right? Now, you've been working through Joshua, so I'm going to just assume a lot of things here. So I hope you'll, you'll, you'll ride with me on this. If you do have your Bibles, it might even be probably their phones in the dark, right? But if you've got your Bibles, it'd be great. Pull those things up. Joshua chapter 18 we will be working out of that, and it would be good for us as we start to set the whole thing into context. And as we think about the larger context of what we've got here in front of us, we, we have to think in terms of the the, the global story or the larger grand narrative. And, and the grand narrative of Scripture, if you allow me to step back that far as I run forward, the grand narrative of Scripture is aimed at answering the question, what is Yahweh up to in resolving the whole Genesis dilemma? 
you know, this business of sin and death and separation from God. All of that stuff that happened back in the Garden of Eden. What is God up to in fixing that? And the Old Testament offers us a partial answer to that question. God is shaping, you with me here? God is shaping a people. A people who will A, give testimony to Yahweh's good work, and B, live out Yahweh's priorities as an example of the rest of the world. And C, can't miss this one, a people who will bring Messiah into the game. That's what I think it's all about. God is shaping a people in order to accomplish these three goals, and one could probably set out a few more besides. And on the way to these, these goals, as the narrative sort of bumps along in front of us, Yahweh makes promises to individuals, right? People like Abraham. And he creates tribal groups or a tribal organized group of individuals. He calls it Israel. And he identifies a specific geographical space where all of this story can play out in front of us. We call it Canaan. Or we could call it Palestine. We could call it the Promised Land. And the author of the book of Judges demonstrates all of these dynamics right here in front of us. And if, again, you've been studying through this, you know this to be the case. Hopefully you've caught some of these in the story. You've seen how hmm, Yahweh keeps his word, right? God keeps his promises along the way. We've seen the differences between faithful responses to the commands of Yahweh's and unfaithful responses to the commands of Yahweh. And we've also seen how Canaan becomes a kind of stage for it all. And it will remain so from this moment in the book of Joshua uh, virtually all the way to the end. And it's that last bit, the bit that I'm talking about here when we talk about land. It's in that last bit that we're driven to the chapter before us, which is Joshua chapter 18. That's its place in the flow. So I think it's, it's good for us to remember that. Within the book of Joshua, the first 12 chapters, I don't know if you've done this, but within the book of Joshua, the first 12 chapters show us how the people of Yahweh swept into this land, a kind of a blitzkrieg, you know, fast sweep. And along the way, they gain insight, and along the way, we gain insight as to what it means to be identified as the people of Yahweh. Remember Achan, right? Do you remember Rahab? Yeah, maybe you did a bit of that. But here in the middle part, this is the part where we really have to kind of slog it out. This is the hard part. I'm talking about the teens. I'm talking about 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, the middle bit of the book. And here we learn about which of these tribes of Israel is going to get which parcel of land, right? Everything gets divvied up, so to speak. 
And early on, it's the big tribes that get attention, the tribe of Judah, the tribes of Joseph. And now as we get to chapter 18, and of course next week I'm hoping you'll come back to 19, as we get to 18 and 19, what happens here is that the little tribes get their bit, right? Lots of attention was given to the big tribes. Now we just give a little bit to the little tribes. And then finally, you've got chapters 20 to the end, and I'm not even going to address that because I'll let you be surprised. The big finish. Yeah, the big finish, to be sure. So that's one thing we have to do today. We have to set the whole thing into context, and I hope I've managed to do that at least a bit. Now, the second thing that we have to do here is look at the text a bit closer, which means we probably ought to read it. And uh, as I've suggested to you, if you've got your Bibles out, we want to do that just now. And what I'd like to turn to is Joshua chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. You want to follow with me? Let's do it. Then the whole congregation of the Israelites assembled at Shiloh, and they set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the Israelites seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So, so Joshua said to the Israelites, how long will you, will you be slack? The word there, it's actually the word it might be limp, you know, or like dough that you knead. You know, you rub the dough together when you're making bread. How long will you be limp? How long will you be slack-handed in going about and taking possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out so that they may begin to go up throughout the land, writing a description of it with a view to their inheritances. Then come back to me. They will divide it into seven portions, Judah continuing in its territory on the south and the house of Joseph in their territory in the north. You will describe the land in seven divisions and bring the descriptions here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before Yahweh our God. <coughs> the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of Yahweh is their heritage, and Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance already, blah, 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 blah. We write, write about that at the end of Deuteronomy. So the men started on their way. And Joshua charged those who went to write a description of the land, saying, Go throughout the land and write a description of it and come back to me, and I will cast lots for you before Yahweh in Shiloh. So the men went and they tra traversed the land and set down in a book a description by towns and seven divisions, and then they came back to Joshua in the camp of Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before Yahweh, and there Joshua apportioned the land to the Israelites, each to a portion. As I said, not exactly the most stunning passage of Scripture. But there's still stuff in there that's valuable and worth looking at. Let me just highlight three right here in your ears. First of all, notice the driver for the situation. And when I say driver, I'm looking at the end of verse 1, where it says, All of this happened after the land of Canaan had been subdued. After the land of Canaan had been beaten down. 
squeezed, right? After the land of Canaan had been beaten down, right? And yet look at Joshua's question down in three. Even though the land had been beaten down, beaten down, Joshua says, why are you still standing here slack-handed, right? Why are you still standing around limp? You've started something, but you haven't finished it. There are still seven tribes, says the tired commander. Why do they not yet have assignments? You see that in verse 3. You know, I told you, and you've already heard from Joel, that I used to be a teacher. And uh, when it came around to the end of the semester, one of the unfortunate things I had to do was issue grades. And those of you who are teachers know that grade time is always difficult, so tough. And one of the grades that I always hated to give was the dreaded grade of I. And you know what an I, what, what's, a, what's an I? Yeah, yeah, I means incomplete. And of course, Jason and Justin, Joel, they never got, never got eyes, you know, anywhere along the way. I'm sure of it. Well, actually, I'm not sure of it. I just don't remember. I'm so old. But, you know, the dreaded grade of I is, you know, is incomplete. It doesn't matter if you do a really excellent job of, you know, half the project. <laughs> You know, it's, it's still half done, right? It's still half done. My wife over here, she loves to make pies. And I love to eat pies. It's a very dangerous combination. Yeah, it, I blame her for my physical condition. But anyway, she loves to make pies. And it doesn't matter how beautiful a pie looks when it's unbaked, right? It's still unbaked. Right now, as I stand here, we're working on a house, and we're putting in a new bathroom in the house, and, and you know, the guy that's doing the plumbing for us, I was up there the other day looking, and he's got this wonderful flange right in the middle of the, the subfloor where the toilet's going to be. You know, there's really nice screws. It's, it sits really flush to the surface. Flush, you get it. Yeah, anyway, it's flush to the surface, and it's really nice. And, and, and yet, you know, you'd, nobody's going to come in and comment about what a great flange he set in the floor, right? Because it's, we need a toilet here, right? It's, it's, it's a half-done half job. And the mission of the land, as has been told to us thus far in the book of Joshua, it's, it's undone. And that's the driver for everything that we see in chapter 18. It's an undone deal. And so we move from that to, to the action. And it's the action that follows the driver. Joshua calls everybody together and he says, okay, we've got to fix this undone problem. And what he does is that he sends out the spies all over again. Joshua's done this before. Only this time, the spies are surveyors. Did you see it? Three men from each tribal family are selected, and their job is to carve up the land that remains into seven sections, one for each of the, the minor tribes. And so the spy surveyors scatter they do their thing, and then they come back, they return, and everything gets recorded as plats in the courthouse. 
Okay, I made that up, but you know what I mean. Right? Everything gets recorded. Everything gets, gets written down. And you can see that in verse 9. They bring back the reports, and then they cast lots. It's like they draw straws. Right? They draw straws in order to decide, you know, or in order for God to decide, really, that's sort of the point of all of this, in order for God to decide which tribe gets which piece of ground. Now, I don't know in this crowd, and certainly with the lights down like they are, and you know, technology being what it is today, we don't always carry Bibles around, paper Bibles anymore. But for those of you who remember the days of paper Bibles, and maybe some of you have them today, you, you, you go to the back of the paper Bible. You know what they, always, they used to always have in the back? They used to have a map of the 12 tribes, right? The, the, the way the land was divided up among the 12 tribes. And I don't know if you've got a Bible with you right now, you may look at that and you can see all the, the pieces, like a big puzzle, right? And these were, you know, in the backs of all the Bibles, but let me tell you something that maybe nobody's ever told you before, but probably somebody should have told you, and it's this, that that map is actually a fiction. It's a fictitious map. What I mean by that, what I mean by that is that it's fictitious in that it represents land that's assigned to the various tribes, but it doesn't actually represent land that was controlled, okay? Land assigned, but not necessarily controlled. And we'll come back to that at the end of this whole thing. But for now, there's still one more thing about verses 1 to 10 that I want to mention. Uh, we've seen the driver. The job was half-baked. We've seen the action. The surveyor spies you know, go out, conduct the survey. I want you to notice one other thing, and you might have caught it along the way, but notice the spot. The spot from which all of these actions take place. They're all launched from here. It all comes back to here. And the spot where all of this takes place is a town. Did you see the name? What's the name? Shiloh. Shiloh. Everybody say Shiloh. Shiloh or Shiloh, right? We say Shiloh. Shiloh. Shiloh is the name of the place, the spot on the map where all of this... Uh, goes down, and it appears four times in the chapter. I don't know if you care. Verse 1, verse 8, 9, and 10, each of these places contains the word Shiloh. Over and over again, it gets repeated. And just so you know, Shiloh will become, as the story of Israel plays out, Shiloh will become a very special place. But we can't feel it yet because this is just the beginning, right? This is the, the debut of Shiloh. And it says here in our text before us that Israel sets up the tent of meeting there. Now, what's the tent of meeting? Do you remember? Tent of meeting, is, it's, it's, it's the tabernacle, right? It's that structure that was made of cloth and stone and gold, and they built it in the wilderness, and they brought it out of the wilderness. And uh, in the time of Moses, you know, they carried it out of the desert, and they set it up right here. And Shiloh, as we move forward, would become the place of revelation and sacrifice until the day when Solomon will build the temple in Jerusalem, and the temple will replace the tabernacle. The temple, incidentally, is kind of like a, what is, a, it's, a, it's a super tabernacle, you know, twice as big in every way imaginable, supersized. 
So what we see here as readers, and as we look at the text as readers, what we see is the settling down, the settling down, excuse me, of a nomadic generation. The people are taking up residency, and as they do, so too does God, Yahweh. He pitches his tent among them. And the place where this all happens is Shiloh, okay? Are you with me? Have I killed you yet? I can't see you. I've got the glasses on so I can see my notes, so I can see my notes, but I can't see you. You with me? I need to see your faces to, to understand you've got the aha stuff going. Right. Good. Aha. The second half of this stunning chapter, I will get even with Jason later on, but anyway, the second half of this chapter begins in verse 11 and goes all the way to the end. And I don't think I'm going to read it. Not going to read it. No, not right now. I wouldn't dare. But you can look at it. Let your eyes sort of wander down the page. And as you do, let me tell you a little bit about it very quickly. The second half of Joshua chapter 18 describes the land parcel that would be assigned to a group, a tribal group within Israel known as Benjamin. And the borders of Benjamin get drawn here and described in verses 11 to 20. And you can follow them as it goes around from here to here, 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 all the way back around again. And this piece of land that is circumscribed in the text before us sits right in the center of the whole of Canaan. It sits right there in the middle, smack dab in the middle. It's a very strategic area. And we read about that in the first part of the second half of the chapter. In the second part of the second half of the chapter, we find a list of the names of villages that were a part of the Benjamite space. And you can see some of the names. They're quite interesting. Geographers, accountants love this sort of thing, you know. Emek Kaziz, Zemariam, Kefar Amoni, yeah, and so forth and so on. <laughs> There's one name, though, one of the villages is in there that everybody in this room would recognize in a heartbeat, right? And the one that everybody's going to recognize in a heartbeat is there in verse 28, if you look all the way down, jumps out of the page right onto your forehead. The name of that place is Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. Jerusalem will be a Benjamite city. And that's probably worth noting, okay? And that comes out of the second half of Joshua chapter 18. There you have it. So Joshua 18 is followed in turn by Joshua chapter 19. I did get a PhD, so I could do that. It's followed by chapter 19, and in chapter 19, the survey continues, and we read about the other you know, minor tribes and their piece of ground as well. But since our chapter stops with Benjamin, I think I'll stop here as well and leave the rest for next week. Don't want to spoil all the fun. So what are we going to do with this, okay? What are we going to do with this text? What can I put in your pockets? How am I doing? Time-wise. What can I put in your pockets that you can take home? Let me see if I can pull some threads together. Make this more like a sermon, I suppose. 
I've suggested to you that the grand narrative of the Bible addresses the Genesis dilemma. What is Yahweh up to? What is Yahweh up to in resolving the problem of Eden? You know, the whole sin, death, and separation from God problem. Well, the Old Testament gives us a partial answer. He's shaping a people, right? I told you that. He's shaping a people who will give testimony to God's good work, a people who will live out Yahweh's priorities as an example to the world, and a people who will bring Messiah into the game. And of course, they couldn't do all of this without a stage. And that's the immediate value of this right here and now. If you think about it, the job that was handed to the people of God, the shaping that we read about here, is something that doesn't go so well over the course of time in the text of the Old Testament. If, if you don't believe me, when you get done with Joshua, turn around and read Judges. And Judges will demonstrate just how poorly all of this was carried out. And as a reliable witness and as an example to the world, Old Testament Israel has serious struggles. Joshua's question, how long will you stand around limp and slack-handed? This, this question sort of rattles, echoes down the hall of the Old Testament. And it's asked over and over again by both prophets and poets. And in the end, after receiving promises, after receiving kingship, after receiving autonomy, after receiving freedom, and after receiving land, guess what? Israel gets a grade. You know what the grade is? I. They get the grade of I. Incomplete. And we should have seen it coming. I mean, even for readers of Moses, if you go back to Deuteronomy, Moses suggested this, did he not? Deuteronomy chapter 28, you will be plucked off the land that you are entering to possess. Yahweh will scatter you from one end of the earth to the other. Deuteronomy 28 verse 63. The settlement story ends with a scattering. That was fun to say. The Old Testament story is a tragic trajectory that ends in exile. And God says, essentially, in essence, I brought you into this land and I will take you out. Land gained will become land lost. It is as if the mighty hand of God reaches into our paper Bibles and rips that map right out of the back. It's fiction, remember? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Maybe you want to draw a deep breath. Maybe you want to pretend it's not happening. I looked on the news this morning. They said 9,500 is the number of deaths in Gaza as of this morning. 9,500. Of the 9,500, 4,000 of them, they're estimating, are children. These numbers are quite rough. They haven't you know, dug up all the rubble yet. All of us have seen the news. What makes this one even worse 
is that it's driven by some really, really bad theology. Muslims appeal to God. Jews are appealing to manifest destiny. And even some Christians are chirping, some of whom may even be cheering. Now, I don't know where you are on this, and forgive me for just all of a sudden getting really ugly here in your presence, but I hope you're not cheering. The scenes that I am seeing on the television here before me are nothing to cheer about. This is not the work of God. But the very worst that broken humanity can do. It's a rage of the most vindictive order. No one can cheer. And all of us can only mourn. The part of this that just gets me the most, though, and I guess it's because it's so close to home. The part that I can't comprehend is the Christian compliance. Maybe even the Christian support for this violence. That's some warped theology, brother. Really warped. I spoke on the phone about, yeah, two weeks ago. Three, maybe. Three weeks ago with a brother. A guy who uh, was an elder in a church, a sizable church in the area. I won't name it. won't name him. We were talking on the phone and sort of, you know, rehashing this whole Gaza thing. And he said to me on the phone, he said, well, he said, you know, some people just need to be annihilated. And I'm thinking, really? Does that, does that sound like something Jesus would say? <laughs> Men, women, children dying on the streets? On both sides of the fence, all right? They're all the children of God. They're all people who were made in the image of God. And apart from the moral problem, the moral issue of such an attitude, I, I think it displays a profound ignorance of Scripture. It's shocking. Some evangelicals even appeal to Scripture as justification for this Holocaust. You've probably heard it just as well as I have. And they take land promises made to Old Testament Israel, like the ones we're reading about in Joshua, and they apply them to the modern state of Israel. See, I told you I was going to get ugly. We must support, we must underwrite the state because God is on their side. There's just two problems with that conclusion. One is called the Old Testament and the other is called the New and if you want to add to that, we might go ahead and add the more distant logical problem, the, the political bind that all of this creates. You can't criticize Israel, they say. You'd be anti-Semitic. <laughs> really. Have you ever read the prophets? <laughs> Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Again, I'm sorry I'm being ugly. Here's the deal. We cannot remedy political confusion. Not really. There are so many beginning points here. Uh, so many agendas, too much mud. But here's what we can do, and here's what I'm going to urge you to do today. Number one, we need to mourn indignity, inhumanity, and the loss of life on both sides. Amen? We must mourn this. It has happened, and it continues to happen 
even today. We must mourn. Number two, we must pray. Every time I get on my Facebook page, yeah, I do Facebook. Every time I get on my Facebook page, somebody says, pray for Israel. I, I think, yeah, we do. We need to pray for Israel. But I have to fight the, you know, have to fight my fingers from saying, yeah, we need to pray for Palestine too. Pray for Israel. But pray for Palestine too. And you know, let me just go really crazy on you. We ought to be praying for Jordan. And we ought to be praying for Egypt. And really crazy now, we ought to be praying for Iran. And we need to be praying for Blinken and Netanyahu and Biden and the whole crew. We need to be praying for women and children and men who are huddling in the corners of houses that are being shot with rockets even as we stand here, right? We need to pray for these people. We must mourn, we must pray, and we need to speak out. That's the third thing we need to do. That's what I'm doing now, right? See, you won't ask me back after this, will you? <laughs> we got to speak out. We can't be silent. We need to have conversations with friends and family, and even in the public forums. I don't know if you saw the news. There were thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people yesterday that gathered in different capitals of the world to speak out. We need to speak out. And we must educate, right? We must educate. We must mourn, pray, speak out, and educate. And that's what I'm trying to do. Because ultimately, right, we cannot lose sight of our identity and mission as the people of God today. Right? We cannot lose sight of that stuff. Old Testament Israel was not the end of the story. Nor was Old Testament Israel the goal of the story. But rather, it was a means to an end. The parcel of land that we just read about for Benjamin, the boundaries, the villages, this is not the end of the story, and it's not its goal, but it's rather a means to an end. Israel as a people, either modern or ancient, and this land, however labeled and defined, do not address the Genesis dilemma, sin, death, and separation from God. These factors or forces merely underline what our unredeemed nature is capable of doing apart from the Spirit of God. Don't confuse the means with the end. You know what? I'm glad for Old Testament Israel. Yeah, they didn't do so well with the identity and mission, all those pieces, but I'll tell you one thing they did do, and they did a great job of it, and that is to bring Messiah into the game. And with that life, with that one, with that Messiah, there can be hope, right? Hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Listen to the kinds of things he said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light to the world. Let your light shine. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. <laughs> but I say to you, do not, re 
resist the evildoer. If anyone strikes you on this cheek, turn to him the other as well. And above else, all else, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest of this stuff will follow. Amen? Amen. We're going to have a time of communion here in just a second, and as we share in the emblems that have been gathered for us here at the table, it's an excellent opportunity for us to do those things that I just described, that we together can bow our heads as we lament uh, the things that are happening around us as we mourn that indignity that I've described. We can pray, pray for people who are in decision-making positions, that they'll make good decisions. Uh, we can look inside our own heart and ask ourselves, what do I seek? Do I seek the kingdom of men? Am I seeking the kingdom of God? Let's do all of that as we pray here together. Let's bow. Thank you, Father, for the blessings of life, blessings that sometimes seem distant to us on dark days, but they're there nonetheless, and we know that even though the power of the evil one is strong, that your power is greater and that you're at work. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to partner with you in bringing about a better tomorrow, that you've asked us, you've called upon us to serve with you in a great mission of redemption. And may we be faithful in following through with uh, our particular assignment, the boundaries of our cities, uh, the villages that are within our reach. May we be faithful in presenting to those who will hear uh, the message of hope, the message of love, the message of peacemaking. Thank you, Father, for each person that's Within the hearing of my voice, soften our hearts. May we be your people today and tomorrow and forevermore. In the name of Christ, I pray these things. Amen.